I know you have heard this before. Work smarter, not harder. Ford has heard it too. That's why the Ford F-150 truck helps you get the job done in the smartest way possible. I mean, the pro-access tailgate alone is a game changer. It improves access to the bed and cargo, which makes it easier to load in tight spaces. See? Smarter. It's also got a mobile power source and pro power on board, so you can power up to 7.2 kilowatts outside your F-150 truck. That is definitely working smarter. And imagine what you can do with that power at your next tailgate party. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates, national average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. The following program is a podcastwarm.com production. This is Talk is Jericho. Talk is Jericho. Starring Chris Jericho. Chris Jericho. Welcome to Talk is Jericho. This is the pot of thunder and rock and roll. And it's Friday. It's Friday, Friday. Gotta get down on Friday. The People's Podcast. Let's go for a ride. But oh man now. Oh hold on now. Mississippi Queen! Yeah! Changing it up on the cowbell for ya. I finally figured out another song that has some wicked cowbell in it. Always need more cowbell, as Lance Storm always says. And you always need more talk as Jericho. Thank you so much for being with me here today. It's Friday. I love it, man. I love it. Had another great week. The Miz was off the chisane. You boy on Wednesday. Today we got Howie Mandel on the show. He's got a new show called Deal With It, back for season two, airing Wednesday nights on TBS. Trust me, it's hilarious. You know why? Because not only do I watch it, I'm actually going to be on the show as a special guest on April 16th. So set your DVS, people! Now, the show is a, a hidden camera prank show. And it's funny, when I did the show, I just kind of I was doing press for whatever the heck it was. I don't even remember. Maybe, but I'm Chris Jericho. And you get a list of press, and it's go here, go here, here, go here for a deal with it on TBS. And I walk in there, and Howie's like, hey, uh, not shaking hands. Howie doesn't shake hands. We're going to talk about that uh, in our interview upcoming. But, he, you know, you tap the elbows. He's like, well, have you seen the show? And I'm like, no. So, so basically, like, like just a typical Jericho jerk off. Like, no, nah, I haven't seen your show. What is it? But I didn't meet. I, I just didn't watch it. But what it is, and I picked up on it really quickly is there's a, it's a hidden camera show and you're watching people do something and one of the people that that uh, has a earpiece and you tell them okay I want you to jump on the table and you know do the watusi and they do that and if they can fool their friend into thinking that they're really jumping on the table and doing the watusi then you get 500 bucks now jump off the table and take your shoes and smell them and drink drink champagne out of it and just yell out this is good and if they do that they get another 500 bucks so it's just really funny to watch how the people react to their friend just completely losing their minds and you just pick up the microphone and tell them to do whatever you want them to do you know take off your underwear put on your face and you know act like uh, b arthur and then they have to do that so a great show to watch uh set your dvrs i will be on it april 16th we got howie coming up to talk about that in a little bit. Also, we're going to be taking your phone calls a little later on. So keep your eye on the Twitter. Phone number will be posted at Talk is Jericho. Do not miss that. Call me. Talk about whatever's going on. Lots of stuff going on. Uh, apparently, the Malaysian government said that Flight 370 is now officially in the water. And they send out text messages to the uh, victims' families. 
Not sure if that's really the most sensitive way of doing things, but I, I, I don't know. I mean, I wouldn't want to text to find out that, you know, my dad had died, you know, from a, from a government agency or whatever it is. But I guess they just wanted the information to get out. Now, we talked about the theories for this last week on the uh, Lita Amy Dumas show. You guys called in and told me what you thought. The only, the only thing that bugs me is that, okay, now they know the plane is in the water, still really haven't found wreckage, and uh, still no theories as to what happened. And that, that bugs me. That's still, that's still, uh, still don't really know what happened there. And until we do for sure, you got to expect some kind of chicanery, some kind of conspiracy. So we'll be on that. I've sent my best reporters out to the Indian Ocean to do on-the-spot reports. And since I don't have any of the reporters, that would be me. And since I'm not in the Indian Ocean, I'll just read the news and, and talk about it like everybody else. All right, so you might know that I used to be uh, in wrestling. It's this thing called wrestling in the WWE. I used to be a wrestler. And people always ask, you know, how long have you, how'd you get in the business and this and other thing? I mean, and there's different ways to get in the business. Some people get in there because, uh, you know, they were football players or other people get in there because they were, you know, I don't know, models. <laughs> Is there models that get in there? I'm not sure. And others get in there because they're fans since, since for their whole life. And I'm one of them. I was a fan since I was a kid. Used to watch with my aunt uh, and my grandma. In, in the house in Winnipeg at her house back in like 78. Got into wrestling and then I got into high school and there was other wrestling fans. And this was kind of 86, so it was, it was the uh, the peak of the Hogan era. And I met up with this friend of mine called Craig Wallace, forever to be known as Wallace. And we were all jumping up and down on these porta pits. You know what those things are? Like the big gym mats that are like, um, I don't know, about a foot and a half to two feet deep. You know, like a big giant cushy, I guess, crash pad that you'd call it. And everyone was jumping up and down on them at recess one day, and we were like, wrestling, yeah, we have DDT, body slam. And it was like, wait, do you like wrestling? He's like, yeah. Do you like wrestling? Yeah. So we became like wrestling buddies, and that's how we became friends. So as time went on, we decided that we were going to start our own wrestling league, and we thought the like the worst, funniest league would, would could be called was the Big Time Wrestling Federation. Like, if you have to actually call yourself big time, chances are you probably aren't. So we became the BTWF. And every Wednesday, we would have Wednesday night's main event, and we'd go to the high school gymnasium where they'd be having basketball practice. You'd go up on the stage behind a curtain, and we'd take out the porta pads and have our own wrestling matches. And one time, the gym teacher came out and saw us, and he goes, what are you doing? And I'm like, well, we're doing tumbling exercises. Okay, no problem. Like, can you imagine now, like, if you, someone was just, Random kids jumping and flipping on a mat in, in the back of the school with no supervision would not happen. So uh, we would also do weekly cards. So we, we would create characters and then do a card of like 10 matches and then play those characters. So we we're basically schizos at this point. He would play 10 characters and I would play 10 characters. We wouldn't let anybody else get involved because it would interfere with our fantasy world. So I was trying to think of the list of the roster that we had, and, and the big the big name, and I have no idea why. I don't know why this started, but it started with the Eastern Crowbar. He was the like our Hulk Hogan, but he didn't look like Hulk Hogan. We'd draw pictures of all the guys, and he had some kind of a weird kind of Canadian Indian accent combined with Schwarzenegger's accent because we loved Schwarzenegger. I'm the, I'm the Eastern Crowbar. Come for you. I'm going to beat you. Like something like that. It was just so stupid. And his. Uh, Rival was the Galangu man, and it was from the Galangu tribe in the in the in the wilds of the African jungle, and he was the Galangu man. So, so I remember the first real main event was for the first uh, edition of Pummel Mania, which was our big show. The main event was <laughs> the Galangu man versus the Eastern Crowbar in a Grotto Valley death match. And I'm not sure exactly what a Grotto Valley death match was. It was something like, I think one of the porta pits was kind of on an angle. So it was kind of like you'd be fighting on the flat surface and you'd be fighting kind of on the, you know, crooked surface. And that was the Grotto Valley death match, which was won by the Eastern Crowbar, of course, because he was the good guy. And then that kind of spawned all these other characters. So here's some of the characters. We had Ricky Starr. He was kind of like the hot young baby face. He was like our version of Ricky the Dragon Steve. But we had the Highlander. And this is before the Highlanders were in the WWE, so I actually created that gimmick, so I want money. 
Vince. Judge Harvey Wirtz was kind of like this old man, but he had a really super buff body, and he would sentence you to a, to a beating. <laughs> then we had the Spirit Walker, which was a, from the cult song. Spirit Walker, I really love you. And his rival was Sheriff Bobby Riggs, who was like a southern bigot, you know, law enforcement individual. And when we came to, when it came time for Pummelmania two, Spirit Walker and Sheriff Bobby Riggs had a um, had a territories match where the ring was 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 split in two with a piece of tape, and you had to pin the guy on your in your own territory because it's like you don't you can't cross the tracks because he's a bigot and all the Indians all the Spirit Walkers had to stay on one side of the ring. And Sheriff Bobby Riggs and the other. So of course, Spirit Walker ended up pinning Sheriff Bobby Riggs in his in his own side of the ring, embarrassing the bigot, kicking him out of the BTWF forever. Then we had the Vid Kid. He was kind of a Sting techno type of a Lasertron type guy. And his because we did theme songs too, which was the BTWF Orchestra, which is a whole other story. And his song was called Manufacturing Cities. Manufacturing Cities, making weapons of war. Manufacturing Cities, what are these weapons for? So we kind of like remember the Pile Driver album came out with like all the wrestlers, all the WWE, WWF guys singing their theme songs. Well, we had the same. So that was Vid Kids. Then we had the Conklin family because we love the fact that uh, the Red River X, which was the, the the carnival that came to town, was always run by Conklin, and we just love that Conklin. So we created our own kind of Von Eric Hart family. They're the Conklins. There was Owen Conklin, Kevin Conklin. I think there was like a Bruce Conklin. <laughs> he was kind of bad because we didn't like Bruce Hart. Um, yeah, Kerry Conklin, he was like the hot guy. So it was like a combination of the Von Erics and the Hearts. Then we had uh, Stumpy O'Shaughnessy. He was our midget champion. Then we had, we always argued, uh, he, Wallace wanted the women's champion to be called Diane Rhea. And I like Diarrhea McClurgy. Like, I like the Diarrhea joke. If you're going to go Diarrhea, like, do it. Not Diane Rhea. We have to think about it. So Diarrhea McClurgy is what I always went with. Then we had the Memphis Man. He was uh, an offshoot of the Honky Tonk Man. And his, his song was like, I can't remember, it was like, In Memphis, boom, boom, boom. In Memphis, boom, boom. I am the Memphis Man. I am a real bad seed. I am the Memphis Man. I give you what you need. In Memphis, boom, boom. So that was that. Big Daddy Arbuckle. He was kind of like a, kind of like a real porky guy. Maybe kind of like our one-man gang. Not to be confused with the BFG, who was the big fat guy. And that's when, uh, based on when they found that guy was like 600 pounds, they had to cut out of the, out of his house and take him out on a on a forklift. We thought that guy should be a wrestler. Like, how badass would that be? Then we had Les Boudreaux. He was kind of a uh, like a job guy, and he had no hair. He had like really bad like receding hairline. Les Boudreaux, the Wild Warden. He was an offshoot of the Big Boss Man. And his partner was Arsenio, which was an offshoot of Akeem, which was One Man Gang's African gimmick. And I think Arsenio played Akeem. <laughs> In coming to America or something, I don't know. The Cruise, he was like the Fonz. Sweet Daddy Sweet, that'd be like your uh, your slick type of a cat character. Rudy Dubro, another poor uh, kind of a nerdy um, job guy. Then we had the Liberator, who actually died in the ring, which is a big controversy. He died at the hands of Judge Harvey Wirtz, actually, in a horrible accident. Then we had the Balaclavas, that we actually wore masks, Balaclava ski masks, and we used to wrestle in my swimming pool. So whoever had to play the balaclava had to wear this, you know, horribly wet woolen face mask. You know, couldn't breathe in it. Um, And then I was going to be Christian Chris Irvin. I wanted to have a Christian gimmick because I loved Striper at the time. And then my friend Dave Fellows, he was disciple Dave Fellows. So we were the Christian soldiers and we were up against like Hell's Demons or something. It was like Abaddon and Kronos, Hell's Demons. And if anybody out there gets the Abaddon and Kronos uh, reference, please tweet me and let me know. And so, yeah, they, so they would wrestle, and then we did the big Pummel Mania 2, uh, was the big final main event. And I think it was Eastern Crowbar, uh, maybe against the Wild Warden or something like that. And, of course, we, everyone would come to the ring. We did the whole big card. Suplex was the name of the wrestling album because the WWE had Piledriver, the wrestling album. So the, the the finish was, and this was before I'd ever seen a ladder match. I, I put up a ladder and I climbed to the top of the ladder, and then the finish was I was going to jump off the ladder and give the Wild Warden Eastern Crowbar I was going to give the Wild Warden a big crossbody from the top of the ladder, and that was going to be the victory, the big win from Pummelmania. So I'm climbing up to the top of the ladder, I open the door up, and out comes this janitor, and we used to call him Egypt because he didn't speak English well, 
So Egypt came out right as I'm per- like he like couldn't have had worse time. Like if he would have come out like 30 seconds later, Pummelmania would have been in the books and done. But I'm at the top of the ladder, just about to jump off, and Egypt's like, "Get down from ladder!" And it's like, "Egypt, shut up! We're about to- down. You down? Down? You down? Egypt, you can't do this!" And Egypt comes and like blocks my path. That son of a bitch. So Pummelmania main event ended up in a in a in a in a no contest. Can you imagine if the main event of WrestleMania ends in a no contest? The people would riot. And that's what happened with the BTWF. We were never the same. We never regained our market share after Egypt did the run-in and spoiled the, the, the finish of Pummelmania 2 and Eastern Crowbar never got his revenge on the Wild Warden. And that, my friends, is why I got into wrestling. To get revenge on Egypt and somehow make up for the horrible fate of Pummelmania 2. <laughs> We got Howie Mandel coming up. All right, there are some seriously talented luchadors in AEW, and not all of them speak English, which can make putting together matches a little challenging sometimes. That's why I signed up for Rosetta Stone. I'm learning Spanish, amigos. Hey, amigas, see, already learning. Haha, Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program. You don't even have to learn Spanish, though, because Rosetta Stone has 25 languages, including French, German, Korean, Arabic, and Polish, and Japanese. That's what I'm going to do next. I spent a lot of time in Japan, and I still work with a lot of Japanese wrestlers at AEW, like Takeshita. So having a better handle on the language will definitely show in the ring. Communication is key. And learning Spanish on Rosetta Stone has been so fun and easy. They've got this true accent feature that gives you feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. Sort of like having a personal trainer for your accent. I'm using the app, but you can also do the lessons on desktop or laptop. I also like that I can download the lessons and do them offline, which is perfect for a plane. I can sit there on a flight and work on my Espanol. So don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Talk is Jericho listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash Jericho. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash Jericho today. That's rosettastone.com slash Jericho. Do it today. On the line right now, fellow Canadian and one of the funniest men on the planet, Howie Mandel is here. How you doing, man? I seem to be okay, fellow Canadian. <laughs> fellow Canadian, sir. Hey, it's great to, uh, to have you on the show after finally meeting you on the set of, uh, of Deal With It a couple months ago. Yeah, well, it was great having you on that show. It, when people see that, that it's hysterical. You were very funny, <laughs> and we had so much fun for you, and it's one of our highlighted episodes. Uh, it's great. Yeah, it's, well, it, it's funny because I, I I was didn't really know much about the show, but to get on there and just see how funny it was, kind of like this master of puppets manipulation, playing God sort of a show. How did you get involved with that? Is, is, did you well, get- the truth of the matter is, this was a, a format that it was already a big hit overseas, mm-hmm. and I saw it. And in, and I love hidden camera. You know, when I was a kid, the first, my first recollection of any comedy was Alan Funt and Candid Camera. Yeah. So from that day on, I've always loved Hidden Camera, more than any kind of comedy, even though I'm a stand-up comic and, and I've been involved in a lot of comedy things. Hidden Camera is always my favorite because it's real, it's relatable, it's visceral. People are screaming at it at, at the television because you go, oh, my God, he doesn't believe that, or what's he going to do, or what's he going to say? So I saw this format, not in English. I have a production company, mm. and I said, this would work in America. we got to bring this to America. And I got the rights to it, and I started producing it. And it's for those that don't know, it's a hidden camera game show where uh, we have uh, kind of like the NSA. We have uh, microphones hidden and, and <laughs> cameras hidden in restaurants and public places and a bar. And then uh, we can hear what people are talking about. And sometimes we glean what their relationship may be to coworkers or their friends. And uh, Theo Vaughn, who hosts it, is there with a celebrity guest, Chris was nice enough to come on and be uh, there. And the, you pick out who you want to deal with, and then they come back. Unbeknownst to them, we'll send a waiter over, and they think they're coming back to uh, fill out some form or move their car or whatever. They meet Chris Jericho, and he goes, hey, do you want to be on a game show? You can win $5,000 right now. They go, okay. We put an earpiece in their ear, send them back out, and they can't let their coworker or their friend or anybody else in the restaurant know 
that they're on a game show. They have to do exactly what he tells them to do in their ear for money. And <laughs> it's awkward. It's embarrassing. It's outrageous. It's funny. And it's Wednesdays, 1030 Eastern on TBS. It's a really funny show because, like you said, you are almost like whoever the the host with Theo and myself, we like kind of are the master of puppets. We tell this person what to do uh, in order to fool their, their friend. And if they can fool them, the longer they fool them, the more the more money they can make. Now, what were some right, of the... And they, Go ahead. They got to deal with it, and they got to deal with it, and not and make it seem like it's real. And I love one of the <laughs> things that makes it the funniest is the more physical it can get. And I remember you telling the girl to do your move, yeah. and kind of she had to come up with a reason in a public restaurant with all these people eating to do that the crab leg kind of thing. Yeah, to, <laughs> yeah it's the <laughs> the walls of Jericho, which I've done it, you know, thousands of times. And my fans know exactly what it is, but to try and explain it to somebody that's never done it before, and I'm off camera with a microphone, like, no, no, put your leg over here. No, put, no, no, okay, stop. Uh, grab the legs, turn over. And that was actually really funny. And then they're actually doing this to their friend in a, in a restaurant. Yeah, and, and everybody is in on the joke except for the one friend that has no idea what the hell's going on. Right. But the people in the restaurant are looking over and going, why are these people doing this? And that person has to come up with a reason. You know, I want to show you a move. I've been practicing for exercise or whatever. And just to watch her try to deal with it and try to win the money was hysterical. And you were really funny. You're a highlight. Once I got another season, I'd love you to come back. Absolutely. Once I got the hang of what we were supposed to do, I had a blast with it. Like you said, okay, uh, stand on one foot and rub your tummy and and jump up and down or whatever it was. Uh, Right. What what, what were some of your favorite uh, or or some of the best pranks from season one? Well, even season one and season season two. This is season two, but this is uh, we had a a guy sitting with his daughter. And, you know, uh, having three kids myself with two daughters. There's nothing more embarrassing than just having a father that exists, you know, at a certain, especially for a teenager. So we figured, why not call the father back and make it even more embarrassing? So uh, this celebrity had, uh, and I think it was Tom Green, Mm -hmm. told her to tell, told him to tell his daughter that you are, and this is why he called her to lunch, it wasn't just uh, fun, that he is leaving her mother for another man. (laughs) Now, will he tell her? If he does tell her, how will she react? Is his relationship with his daughter worth a couple of grand or whatever that level was worth? So those are the, I don't want to give away what yeah. happened, but it, that's outrageous. Chance, you know? Chances and are have, it was worth a couple of grand, I bet. <laughs> yeah, Heidi Bloom uh, created one of our bits that had full frontal nudity. Okay. We've never had that before. <laughs> that's always and a pleasure. I don't know that I want to see it again because it was a short, naked, hairy man. <laughs> Always a winner. Short, naked, hairy man equals ratings, Howie. One thing you've learned. It's really? Not, oh, I would hope so. In what, on what planet? I don't know. Maybe Heidi in, Klum make it equals maybe ratings. Maybe it could work. A exactly. Short, hairy, yeah. <laughs> so we're talking about how, how you have a production company and about deal with it and how it's uh, such a hit. Season two is on right now. I mean, such a long road for you starting off in Canada. I remember when you, I told you this when we first met, I remember watching you in the late 70s, early 80s, and you were the big, hot, young, upstart comedian. You would put the, the rubber glove over your nose, wow. over your face, and blow it up. And then you go, what, what, what? And that was right. like, Howie Mandel was like the biggest new thing in comedy. How did you make that transition from, from Canada all the way to becoming this production mogul with all these different shows that you do? Well, I had gone on, you know, comedy was big, and then there's a chain of comedy clubs in Canada. At first, it was this one called Yuck Yuck, yeah. and that's where I started. And having done that, you know, that was a great hobby of mine. That was like people go on Wednesday nights to play poker or basketball. I didn't go dancing. I didn't play poker. I went to the comedy club, and it was doing that. Never thought of it as a living. Mm-hmm. And then I came down to California on a vacation and slash business trip mm-hmm. because I was in retail mm-hmm. and I went to the comedy store and uh, I got on amateur night there and there was a producer in the audience that, that was doing a comedy game show called Make Me Laugh and he saw me on stage and said would you like to be on our show and I thought this is so Hollywood yeah I'm going to be on a TV <laughs> show and I was on it and flew back to Canada after it was on it but when it aired um, I started getting calls I became I got called by Gene Simmons you know of yeah yeah he, he was, at that time, in the late 70s, I don't think a lot of people know this, he was going out with Diana Ross. Right. And he called me, yes, he was dating Diana Ross, <laughs> and he saw me and, and, and told her to hire me as her opening act. 
and I became her opening act at Caesar's Palace. You're kidding me. And no, I'm not kidding you. And then, and then, so that was my, and then I started doing Merv Griffin and Mike Douglas, and then I got, eventually got the Tonight Show, and then I did Staying Elsewhere, which was a dramatic mm-hmm. show. I mean, I, and then, you know, I did cartoons and all this, and then eventually when, um, Deal or No Deal came about in 2005, mm-hmm. I just, you know, I had been in television so long, and I saw how it was, doing it and i wanted to be kind of like deal with it i wanted to be the puppet master i didn't want to wait for people to call me and Mm -hmm. give me jobs i wanted to start making television so i negotiated a production deal and i had a production deal at universal at the time and and nbc universal is all one company Mm -hmm. and uh, the rest is you know it's been about six years of this production company and i've been producing shows for all the networks a show called mobbed and we Mm -hmm. how we do it which is hidden camera prank show prank show and we've got a lot of shows in production, and they're not necessarily shows that I'm on, but right. they are shows we produce. So I, I love that, too, you know? And when I'm not being asked to show up someplace and act like a goofball, I get to <laughs> sit in an office and be creative and try to come up and, with ideas, sell and, ideas. And act like a goofball. <laughs> and act like a goofball. Where, whereabouts in, the, in Canada are, are you from? Toronto. So when you were... When, I, I when, still maintain a home there. Okay, so you still have because there's one thing about about growing up in Canada. I mean, we all do have a real quirky sense of humor. There's definitely that Canadian style of sense of humor. It's a little bit off kilter, and you can see that from all the great comedians that have come from Canada. When you were growing up, did, were, did, you, did you watch um, or did you was SCTV on when you were kind of making your way up as well? Well, yeah, it was. I'm the same age as those guys. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm not a, I'm not a young guy. I'm almost sixty myself. So yes, I saw that, and I watched. You know. Wayne and Schuster, and yeah. uh, you know, but Wayne and Schuster, people don't know that it was a, it was a Canadian comedy team. Do you yes. know who they are, Chris? Yeah, absolutely. And his his daughter Rosie Schuster was married to Lauren Michaels, and Hart and Lauren. There was a there was a, a comedy duo called Hart and Lauren. It was Hart Pomerantz and and Lauren Michaels, and then Lauren came down here and started Saturday Night Live, and he's the executive producer of Saturday Night Live. Right, right, right. It, it, you know, and. It, uh, comedy, I think it's uh, because the weather is a little more abrupt <laughs> up in Canada, and cabin fever makes you a little loony and crazy <laughs> and uh, hopefully creative, and it sells American tickets. A little bit wacky, right? How did you uh, come up with the idea to put a, a rubber glove around your nose and blow it up? That was, uh, that was a lack of no ideas. You know, I carry <laughs> rubber gloves because I'm a germaphobe, and I was standing on stage, and there's a couple hundred people staring at me, and I had nothing to do next, and I just had the rubber glove in my hand, in my pocket, because I always carry rubber gloves, and I just put it over my head because it was a, 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 without thinking, a place to hide, and when I was breathing, the fingers were going up and down, it was getting laughs, and then the people said, oh, that was brilliant. It was nothing. It doesn't take a talent. It's just uh, crazy. <laughs> that became your claim to fame, man. You know, you, you mentioned doing Mike Douglas in The Tonight Show. And I mean, how was it kind of being on those classic shows? I mean, all those guys, Merv Griffin and Mike Douglas. And actually, Johnny Carson is, is a hero of mine from, from when I was a kid. I mean, how was it back in those days to do those shows? How important were Amazing. they to get on those? It was the pinnacle, and it, especially Johnny Carson. You know, I did Johnny mm. Carson 22 times. You know, wow. growing up in, in suburban Canada, you know, Hollywood was, I was never even in a school play. It was so far from my, you know, even, I couldn't even fathom, mm-hmm. not, let alone being on any of the shows coming to California. So to be in California and to be sitting on the set and going, it was like, it's, and even to this day, this is 180 degrees from where I dreamed I would be, you know, uh-huh. living in LA and doing it, but sitting on the set of the Johnny Carson show, you know, and it's very different then because when I did those shows, and even make me laugh. And when I did the Johnny Carson show specifically, you know, the next day your life changed. Mm. That doesn't happen anymore because now, you know, at that time there was, you know, three stations, at least in America, you know, ABC, yep. NBC, and CBS. And they went off the air at midnight or one o'clock. And so that if you got on TV, I mean, the world was watching you and everybody knew your name the next day. Now, you know, with everybody having at least 500 channels mm-hmm. and, and 24 hours a day, and other places to go for entertainment besides radio, podcasts, and all this. You know, right. lucky that people, anybody sees anything you do and even is aware of anything you're doing. So it's so much harder today to get noticed, but it's easier in a way because you can sit in your own room and create something on YouTube and become viral and become a sensation in your own room. Well, but it's, for yeah. me, doing those, those things was life-changing. 
Well, it's much more fragmented now, like you said. Everybody can get on YouTube, but how many people are watching? Whereas back in those days, there was one basic host, and it was Johnny. And if you could do his show, you kind of had a, especially as a young comedian, because the the uh, the the, I don't know the rumor or the rule was if Johnny called you onto the couch after your set, you knew you had killed it, right? You were gold. You were gold, and then then the next day you were offered sitcoms, and you were offered jobs, and everybody knew your name when you're walking around. You know, tonight they talk about the late night wars. There's, you know, besides the the four networks all having two shows each, whether yeah. it's Fallon and Seth Meyer and and Letterman and Ferguson and right. and Conan's on PBS, Kimmel and, and yeah. you know Jimmy Kimmel and I, I mean, there's just so many shows after midnight on and the you know the mm-hmm. John Stewart show and Colbert. You know, you, there isn't one show at that time. That's all at one time. That's all That's at right. 1130 at night. You know, you knew at that time at least 20 million people, 15 to 20 million people were watching Johnny Carson on any given, on an average night. Now, you know, like today, you, you don't even have 10 million people watching American Idol. That's right. Yeah. Good point. Now, now how long was it before you got called onto the couch with Johnny? Or did you get called on the couch? Well, I was lucky. I, here's, here's the thing. I came out and I was doing Merck Griffin and Mike Douglas, and I couldn't get on the Johnny Carson show. They weren't booking me on the Johnny Carson show. Mm-hmm. And then I got St. Elsewhere, you know, and there was a, a dramatic show on NBC that mm-hmm. a lot of people started out there. Denzel Washington is from there. Oh, that's right. And, uh, as it turns out, uh, Joan Rivers at that time was uh, Joan Rivers and da- David Brenner were guest hosts when Johnny wasn't there, and yeah. they were getting huge ratings, maybe even bigger than Johnny at the time. Wow. And Joan Rivers saw me at the comedy store do a set, and she came up to me and she said, "Do you ever? Did you ever do the Tonight Show?" And I go, "No." She goes, "Well, I'm hosting next week. Why don't you come on?" So she brought me on, and I went on. And as luck would have it, and I was never going to get on, I don't know that the, the booker thought I was Johnny's cup of tea, Johnny was at home and saw me and invited me back two weeks later, so right to the couch, because I was an actor, but I could do my act from the couch. Wow. And I went on, and I knew this was my chance, my one shot to do Johnny Carson. It was the scariest night of my life, because I went on and I did something. I didn't want to go over with the booker what I was going to do. I did, but I, I uh-huh. you had to, but I was afraid that he would say no to everything because I knew that my comedy wasn't his cup of tea. <laughs> right. And I'll never forget this. I'm sitting there, and I'm looking at Johnny Carson. And, you know, you're a foot and a half from him, and this is an icon, and this is somebody we watched every night, and everybody, you know, when you heard that Doc Sevenson play that theme song, <laughs> yeah. the world was watching. And I gave, I pulled out of my pocket, I said, do you, do you like 3D movies? I love 3D movies. I brought these 3D glasses, put them on. And I gave him three glasses to wear, and I saw off to the side the guy, that the booker, going, what the hell is he doing? <laughs> and he put on the glasses, and I said, this is so cool, watch this. And I started taking out stuffed animals from my, I had a little prop <laughs> bag with me, and I started whipping them at his face and asking him, doesn't it look like these are coming right at you? <laughs> and totally and, deadpan, you know, right? Totally deadpan. Yeah. And, and I thought, you know, this can go any way. I'm like throwing sh- Johnny Carson's face. <laughs> and, you know, he doesn't know me from Adam, and I know, and they had told me that I'm not the kind of guy that was going to get booked on the show, but I figured, this is my one chance, this is, yeah. and it, it seemed like an eternity from the time I threw it in his face to the time he just rocked back in his seat and laughed, and then from that time on, he invited me back. I did it 22 times that with is Johnny. Amazing. I did it many other times. That's amazing. No, that, and like you said, you you took a chance, and that's what I yeah. always loved about Carson was that he was always there to get his guests over. He didn't need to be the star of the show. He knew it was the Johnny Carson show. So you know, let me be the straight man for you to come out there and throw stuffed animals at me. And and you know, that's that's the perfect Johnny story for sure. Yeah, he was great. He was the consummate host, the gracious host that made it, let his guests shine. Now he you, really did. Now you, you mentioned too. You came out to you know to L.A. as a, started as a comedian. How did you get the gig with Saint Elsewhere, which was like you said, it was a it was a straight drama, like a real so everything heavy I've drama. Ever done has, everything I've ever done has been by accident. You know, I don't I don't uh, blaze a trail. I just follow this <laughs> path, and every opportunity I've been lucky enough to take. So. I was doing good. I'd gotten an HBO special, which was big at the time, and mm-hmm. I started getting known, and I was doing concert tours in the early 80s, and I was really known. And the normal uh, flow of career for stand-up comics was to get your own sitcom. You know, Robin Williams mm-hmm. had launched uh, Mork and Mindy, and uh, Freddie Prince was on Chico and the Man, and uh, Billy Crystal had just moved over to Soap. Soap. Yeah. So I went and met uh, at MTM, Mary Tyler Moore's company, Ms. Molly Lapata, and I went in and I met her because she knew me from my stand-up, and she said, "Can you act?" And I said, "Well, I don't know. I, just, you know, I did, maybe." 
You know, mm-hmm. and she said, read this. And she gave me these sides to read. Uh-huh. And it was all this medical terminology. <laughs> and she went, oh, that's very good. And I go, it is? Yeah, come down the hall. And I go down the hall, and I meet with these guys. And they have me read it again. And I read it, I read it again. And she says, uh, and, and they, halfway through, they go, okay, thank you. And, and they say goodbye. And I remember going home and saying to my wife, she goes, how did it go? And I go, well, I don't think they liked me, and I don't think I got whatever job they're trying to yeah. I read for, but I don't feel so bad because I'll be honest with you, it's not that funny. I didn't get it. I didn't understand what I was reading. It's not that funny. But an hour later, I get a call and they say, uh, you know, uh, it's NBC. Could you come down to Brandon Tartikoff's office at NBC? Wow. And he was so the president of the, the network at the time. Yeah, uh, the president of the network, you know, and I, I go down to his office and the guys that I had read for were sitting there. Now they turned out to be Mark Tinker, Grant Tinker's son, mm-hmm. Bruce Paltrow, Gwyneth Paltrow's father. You know, and they were the wow. executive producers of this show, Tom Fontana and those guys. And I go down and I read the same medical jargon again. They go, okay, we'll see you Monday. So I leave the office thinking they're going to want to see me again on Monday. My agent calls me and says, congratulations, you got the show. You're starting Monday. I go, I'm starting Monday? What show am I starting on Monday? <laughs> yeah. And apparently there was the, um, there, they, they had been shooting a pilot for seven days, and they shut it down. They didn't like the way it was going, and they were recasting some parts. So I, I, I'm a recast, hmm. and I just took over and walked into this this part and stayed there for six years. I didn't know. I was trying to get a sitcom, and I got on this dramatic <laughs> show, which is crazy. That is, that is amazing. It's funny, too, because a lot of comedians will go and get you know dramatic roles after they've kind of staked their claim in comedy already. But you started basically, like we said, the first that we saw of you in the States was as you know as, as Wayne Fiscus on this show, on the dramatic show. Right. What, what did you think of yeah. the What did you think of the end of Saint Elsewhere? I remember people were all mad about it because it was all, all a dream. In the mind of an autistic child. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, there's no way you're going to please everybody. I thought it was pretty interesting that it was all in the mind of an autistic child. I'm waiting to find out at the end of my life that that's what this is. <laughs> exactly. I have it's... no idea, or maybe even this podcast. It's all a dream. We don't know. Ah, the sweet sound of sports you love from Sling. The collide of football pads. The squeak of shoes on a basketball court. The crack of the bat on a home run. The slice of skates cutting across the ice. But what about this one? That's the sound of all the sports you love. All at once. Starting at $40 a month. Experience it all live with Sling. Sling. Talk is Jericho. Welcome back to Talk is Jericho. Howie Mandel is here. Is this all a dream of an autistic child? We're trying to find that out and figure it out. You know, <laughs> after I, mem- I remember um, when, when Deal or No Deal started. I mean, that, that show was massive pretty much right off the bat. And that was kind of like the new Howie Mandel. I mean, I know you've done a few things. You, you had your, your talk show and you had, you know, you did do Bobby's World, which was one of your old characters. I remember you doing Bobby when you were still blowing the, the, the rubber glove up with your nose. But Deal or No Deal was kind of a whole, whole deal break, uh, game changer for you. The truth is, it was, and unbeknownst to me, uh, you know, uh, uh, to be totally candid with you, you know, my, my career was uh, stalling a little bit at right at uh, 2004, 2005. I'd done a pilot, uh, a couple of pilots at, at NBC and ABC, and they didn't go forward. I'd probably done about five or six since, since they else were half hour comedy pilots, and they weren't working, and mm-hmm. the, uh, it was really uh, kind of disheartening, and, you know, I was still touring and doing 300 dates a year, but, you know, I was slowing down on that. And I was, I was uh, which isn't like me, I was about to give up. Wow. When I got a call. When I got a call, they said, we have this game show called Deal or No Deal, and, we were, and, and they didn't even get past that. I went, there's no way. I'm not going to do a game show. Now, you have to remember, at that time, no comedian. Not since, and it was, uh, I didn't, I, I'll remember it now, not since Groucho Marx in the 50s had done a, a game show. It was uh, a game show host or something comedians make fun of, not right. VR. Right, right, right. I thought if my career is going downhill, being a game show host is going to be the nail in the coffin of my career. So I just went, no. Mm-hmm. They called me back an hour later and they go, listen, just can we tell you what the game is? And I said, yeah, tell me what the game is. So they told me the game is that people are just going to try to choose cases an hour of opening cases and we have 26 bikini models so i think the description of the game <laughs> assume you don't know you've never seen the game was even worse than <laughs> yeah, right. it was a game show i thought this is not a 
a game. There's no trivia. There's nothing. Bikini models. It's just going to be silly. I'm going to be laughed out of town. No, I'm not going to do it. Mm-hmm. And then the third time, they said, you know, we can't do this without you. And my wife went, you idiot. I, I, you're being an idiot. I said, why? I go, this is going to ruin my career. She said, you're at home. This is your career. Just take it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so she was the smart one. So I took it. And they said, we couldn't do it without it. You're our first choice. And I said, when do I start? This is a Friday again. They said, Monday we're taping. And I go, well, don't you have to build a set? I said, well, they said, we built the set. I said, well, don't you have to hire the models? We've already hired the models. So obviously <laughs> I wasn't the first choice. <laughs> yeah, right. A lot of other people had said no. And I was so nervous about it. And I went on and I taped the show on the Monday. We taped six episodes. They had a commitment from NBC to do six episodes. And when I knew it was going to air, I got on a plane and flew out of the country because I didn't want to be here. Really? Or what I believe the, the ridicule was. Really? Of me <laughs> hosting this. Yeah. And then what was funny, I'll never forget, after it aired, I landed back in Miami. And I got off the plane. And within 30 seconds, the first person that walked up to me goes, deal or no deal? I go, you, you saw it? And then every third person was saying it to me. And I didn't realize it had gone through the roof. And it become it be, had become part of you know the zeitgeist. You yeah, know, people this, were. Yeah, it, it was in New York Times. People were saying it. It was in headlines. People were studying it in school. It was just uh, it was really exciting. I didn't expect it, and it's given me the biggest audience today. It's the only thing I really said no to ever in my career, and it's the most successful thing I've ever been part of. I, I think it's because of the simplicity of the show is why it worked so well. Like you said, there was no real, you know, trying to figure out, you didn't have to think, but you but you did have to think, but not about, you know, inconsequential rules and, and trivia. It was all about the case, and that's why you kind of people embraced it. Right, and it brought the whole family together to yell and scream at the TV and to, oh, yeah. you know, come up with their own theories of how, what should happen. Should they keep going? Should they go home? It was great. It's great to be part of it. It was a great study in humanity. What? It was hard for me. I mean, the hardest part for me was to not throttle somebody. Oh, to, I know. You know. To say, take the goddamn deal, please. You told <laughs> me you have no home. You've never owned a home. You have no insurance. You have three kids. And I just told you the bankers offering you $250,000. And then adamantly, they could look at me and go, no deal. Like, who are you showing it, it was it, yeah. It was almost like a, um, a study of human behavior to see how how I guess, for lack of a better term, how greedy people can become when you have that carrot dangled in front of you. Well, you know that's what built Vegas. You know, they, yeah. they, everybody had that theory that like, if I came with nothing, I could leave with nothing. But no, you didn't. If you came with nothing and I offer you two hundred thousand dollars, you have two hundred thousand dollars. That's, that's right. Your money, and you're throwing it away. Who was the banker? We never saw. Uh, Is, it's very funny. The the banker. Was there was a guy there, yeah. and uh, <laughs> he was he was there, and he was you know it's it, he was actually working part time as a bartender in <laughs> Santa Monica, and it was so funny because he would tell me stories. He would try to tell girls that he was a banker, <laughs> and they didn't believe him, and he would stand against the lit window so that they could maybe uh, you know recognize his silhouette. It was just a uh, Oh, that's poor guy. That's great, and I'm sure there was probably yeah. hundreds of guys across the country who also told the girls that they I were the banker. banker. I am the banker. <laughs> um, it went from once a week to twice a week. I think at one point it was going like three or four nights a week. Correct? Yeah, I did it in four years. I did it. I did 500 episodes. Wow. I know it's crazy. Well, I mean, there was video games. I mean, we we go up to northern Minnesota to Lake Vermilion. My my uh, family has a cabin up there, and there's a little arcade kind of in the in the wilderness. And my kids play right. those games where they collect tickets, and I always go play the deal or no deal game. And, and you're on it, the big giant stand up video game. So I see you every summer, yeah, Howie. We have video games. We have slot machines. There's uh, DVD games. It was all over the place. It blew up big. I have that ticket game in my house. It's great, right? I have it right beside the bed in the master bedroom. (laughs) If I win enough tickets, my wife gives me prizes. (laughs) If you know what I mean. Hello. How are you? (laughs) But that made you like America's, you know, one of America's favorite adopted sons. Yeah, sweetheart. Exactly. I mean, you were were all over the place, man. I mean, people were talking about how I'm a dog. Because like you said, I didn't say it earlier because... I didn't, you know, didn't really know what to say, but you said your career was kind of at a lull or whatever it was, and then suddenly Howie Mandel, you know, new look, now you're bald, you got the little soul patch. I mean, you were all over the place, man. Yeah, it's just a, you know, I didn't do that for that show. That's how I had looked for years, but <laughs> okay. I just wasn't getting, I just wasn't getting the same, uh, you know, uh, same deal or no deal. Is, and is that what led you to get the gig on America's Got Talent? You know, that's some, everything I've done has is, is been amazing to me. I'm amazed that America's Got Talent is a job for me. You right. know, first of all, I love 
talent. I love going to, even when I tour, and I still do it, I always did. When I'm finished my show, I'll ask where there's a club, and I can go to a show or a nightclub and just see. I love watching people perform. Right. And it's good, bad, and different. I watch TV 24 hours a day. I'll turn on a channel where they're not even speaking English. I'm fascinated by performance. To think, and, and I work my butt off, you know, just trying to put on a show and make people, you know, kind of like me. I never dreamed that, that one day there'd be a job for me where I just sit there. Mm-hmm. No, there's no preparation and watch a show and comment on a show. And that's what you're paying me for. As I said, when I got the job, they're paying me for what I was doing at home alone in my underpants. Yeah, right. Uh, They've given me a pair of pants and a check, and now that's what I'm doing. And I'm sitting with my friends. You know, I'm I'm friendly with Howard Stern and Heidi uh, Klum, and I just met Mel B. You know, and I'll go out with them socially besides, you know, on the show. And now this is a job. I can't believe this is a job. Well, I mean, and, and it's funny because that's kind of the way of the world now is is kind of the on-air talent shows. And had these been around 30 years ago, it's something that you might have even done. Well, they were. You know, there was a Ted Mack hour, which I actually have been to a taping of in the 50s and the 60s. Uh-huh. But they weren't, uh, I don't think that the judges were as celebrated as, uh, you know, they have become mm-hmm. since, the, you know, American Idol and some of those other shows. You know, right. so, you know, just for being a judge, you're celebrated, whereas I thought that the talent is what deserves to be celebrated. But, you know, it's just a, it's a real different world. It's always been that way. You know, the voice that I do that's, that's Bobby is something that I got in trouble in school for. I got thrown out because I was <laughs> making that, that funny voice. I never dreamed that it would end up being a Saturday morning cartoon. And, for years. You know, in 65 countries. Yeah. Yeah, no kidding. It was a happy meal. Yeah, right. That's right. But, you know, we're talking about America's uh, Got Talent and, and the relationship with the judges. How is it like being kind of on a panel with such a huge personality like Howard Stern? Does, does he get along with the rest of the gang? Was there any issues? Yeah, that- you know, we are fr- we're friendly outside of it. But the truth is that everybody on our panel, and Howard Stern included, is incredibly passionate and, you know, well-versed in, in you know, in this business. Right. So that being said, uh, I think that the chemistry on our show is not like any of the other talent shows in the sense that we're willing and we do fight and disagree mm-hmm. and we're mm-hmm. passionate and we have different philosophies and, you know, ultimately I think we respect each other, but we're willing to call each other out on, you know, I just think you're totally wrong and I don't get what you're seeing and I don't, and, and, and that dynamic is the same kind of dynamic as a couple of people coming over to somebody's house and watching TV and agreeing with or being big fans of a sport, two different sports teams. Right. You know? And so we have very, you know, uh, energetic, passionate discussions that kind of explode sometimes into arguments. And maybe that makes the TV too. But ultimately, <laughs> we all like each other and respect each other what's uh, some of the what's the craziest talent audition you saw on that show since you've been working there i'm amazed by what people call talent and what takes <laughs> up you know last year we had a guy that uh, uh apparently uh could kick himself jump into or have things thrown and shot at his genitals and uh, <laughs> somewhat survive it. His, his, the character name was Horse, and he'd have he'd have uh, he had a ball machine. He had Howard shoot tennis balls at it. He jumped off a ladder onto a straddled crossbar. He, uh, I mean, it's amazing the damage that he seemed to cause his testicles in the name of entertainment. He ended up getting a short run television show on FX or Spike TV or someplace. And, uh, you know, I don't know that that pain is worthy of it, but I thought that was pretty amazing to watch. I mean, it's like you said, what what defines talent? I mean, one of the biggest kind of underground that's actually mainstream talent of the last 10 years was the whole jackass gang. And it's basically talent if you can stand there and get, you know, punched in the face by a kangaroo. Yeah, and, you know, the truth of the matter is, and that's the beauty of America's Got Talent, is we don't have a definition of what talent is. And unlike any of the other shows, which are specifically singing or music or dancing, you could see anything on our show. And from the craziest to the scariest to the most dangerous, it all, you know, and it's 
for 90 seconds you don't enjoy what you're hearing or seeing, there's something new and completely on the other end of the spectrum coming <laughs> up, and that's what keeps it interesting, especially for somebody like me who's very ADD. Well, and you mentioned you know, ADD, you mentioned before being kind of a germaphobe, um, and you actually had to kiss Howard Stern on the lips. How did I didn't you have to. <laughs> you, you, I didn't have well, to. I mean, yeah, you weren't, you weren't, you, it wasn't like you were going to get put in jail, but you did kiss Howard Stern on the lips. How did you manage? Right. How did you do that? But did Howard's probably got some germs on his lips, I would imagine. I know. That's, but my thing is, sh- I didn't shake his hand, and I won't shake his hand. I'll <laughs> kiss you on the lips, I just won't shake your hand. <laughs> how you long? Know, it it, it, it doesn't make sense, right? Yeah, but that's my LCD. <laughs> I just won't touch things. Have you but always. Lips, listen, I have three children. I have three children. I just. Uh, and, you know, I, I had them without shaking my wife's hand. <laughs> and you've always been that way? You've never shooken hands? I have shaken hands, and uh, I've always felt that way. I was just never open uh, about my, you know, mental health issues until, you know, maybe in the last decade or 15 or 20 years ago, I kind of, it slipped on the Howard Stern show where I said, you know, I'm seeing a therapist and I'm having a hard time. I was locked in the in his uh, studio, and he thought it was funny that I couldn't touch the doorknob. And uh, wow. it got to a point where I ended up having a panic attack and said, no, this is serious. I have, you know, obsessive compulsive disorder. I can't do it. And uh, I thought I was devastated that I had given that kind of information out publicly because there is a stigma attached to mental health issues. And I thought, sure. I don't know how this is going to affect me, first and foremost, my family. You know, are they going to be embarrassed? And then how am I going to make a living? Who's going to hire somebody who has, who has to go to a psychiatrist? Mm. And lo and behold, it turned out to be a positive in the sense that I learned that I'm not alone and I get really good health, help and a, and a support system. And there's a lot of people out there that, you know, suffer much worse than me. And, you know, when you have mental health issues, the, the over, my overview is that you're alone. You know, you feel very alone. Right. And you find out that you're not alone. You know, a lot of people deal with it. And that's my, on, on a serious note, that's my soapbox now. Is sure. Kind of, uh, bring a face to mental health issues and make mental health part of our curriculum. You know, if we, we take care of our physical health, we take care of mental health, not mental health. You go get a checkup from a dentist, you know, you get x-rays, you go get a cleaning, even if nothing bothers you, but you don't sit down and talk to somebody and mm-hmm. figure out how you cope and, and, you know, is there anything wrong? And there's so much stress in today's life with, you know, the pressure of work and finance, relationships and catastrophic illnesses. I mean, nobody's helping you deal with any of that mentally. And it's tried and proven scientifically that if you have good mental health, you're going to have good physical health. Well, and that's something that's admirable, too. Like now you've become kind of, you do you kind of do uh, like like a spokesman for, for OCD or some of that people like do you go out there? I mean, I know like my friend uh, James Durbin, he was on American Idol. He had Asperger's and autism. He became kind of a, a hero to a lot of people that should show you can go and become a star and become, you know, famous or whatever the word is. Do you have a lot of people that say thanks, Howie, for, for coming out and, and letting us know that we're not alone? Yes. But, you know, I'm not out there to be the face of anything no. or to, to make, make myself known. But, but I think that, that, you know, if we could lead a little bit of a trail, whereas everybody who has an issue could say they have an issue. You know, we're all humans. Right. We all have, you know, crap that happens to us and things that are tough to deal with and things that make no sense and nobody's perfect. Mm-hmm. And if we could just mention it and, and have that comfort, there's help out there for everybody. You know, these things are... You know, you can live with them and you can be uh, live a fulfilling, you know, active, uh, accomplished life, even with the most debilitating issues. You know, it's right. really hard for me sometimes. And it's, even though I make fun of it, it it's, uh, it's incredibly painful and a constant struggle. And, you know, I'm medicated as I speak to you right now and I'm constantly seeking help. And it's, it's hard for my family who has to deal with my idiosyncrasies. But, you know, I'm not alone, and there's a lot of people out there. So in answer to your question, yes, people do say thank you, but they can be part of it, too, by being public about it, by saying, you know, I have this issue, so other people right. come forward. Because, you know, as a performer, I think people are more accepting of a little bit of quirkiness. Mm-hmm. But in, the, in everybody's regular life, you're in the bank, you know, at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, you say, i got to leave at 2 o'clock for a dentist appointment, nobody... But if you say I'm going to leave at 2 o'clock, I'm going to go talk to my psychiatrist, I think uh, people would still flinch at that, where there shouldn't be any flinch. It should be part of our regular curriculum. It should be in the school system. And maybe that would nip in the bud, you know, some of these people that end up 
so desperate that they walk into public places with guns and mm. guns. Yeah, or, yeah. They just don't know any different. That's right. That's right. Do you still uh, spend a lot of time doing stand-up? Do you have time to do stand-up anymore? Do you still love doing stand-up? Stand-up is my saving grace. Stand-up is the one thing that I never give up with all the things I do. I do over 100 live days a year. Wow. I'm still touring. I believe that, you know, as somebody who does television and, and entertainment for the masses, catering to the masses, how do you do that and live in the bubble of L.A.? or just in a television studio or not now. So to be out there in in the world and seeing what people are reacting to, again, also being out there in the world and not having any marks to hit, lines to recite, right. there's, no, there's nothing that's off limits. It's like a primal scream at the end of the day. I can do anything. I can cross any line. I can talk about anything. I don't edit myself. So people who see me on these television shows that are good family entertainment, don't bring your kids. <laughs> you see that I'm playing where you are live. <laughs> well, the thing is, too, is also something to be said of being live without a net. I mean, when you're doing TV, you take one, you take two, let's do it again. If you mumble or fumble a line, it's no big deal. But when you're live, man, you got to be on it. And if you do screw up, you got to just continue through. And that, it keeps your chops up when you can do that. It does. Well, that's why I'm doing my favorite kind of television now. If you look at Deal With It that we were talking yeah. about at the beginning of this thing, that's without a net. You don't know how these people are going to react. You don't know if you get anything. That's right. You know, and that's what I love. And that, and that sensibility, I think, comes through the strain and makes this interesting live electric kind of television. No, you're right. You're right. Deal with it. Wednesdays at 1030 Eastern on TBS. It's a great show. I had a blast on it. Tuesday, May 27th is the premiere of America's Got Talent. Uh, keep in mind that Howie still does stand up, but don't bring your kids. You got a lot of cool stuff going on, Howie. And I'm really glad we we're able to connect today. Thank you so much, Chris. So I'm constantly missing episodes of my favorite TV shows because I'm on the road or my kids are watching stuff that they want to watch. So I found a solution to that problem. Hulu Plus. With Hulu Plus, I can now stream TV shows and movies wherever and whenever I want to. My smartphone, my tablet, my computer, whatever device I choose, how fruit is that? Even better. Hulu Plus has full seasons and tons of shows. So now I'm getting hooked on new stuff like the following great show. And I can watch as much as I want for as long as I want for just $7.99 a month. Wow, that, my friends, is money well spent. And Hulu Plus has something for everyone. Full seasons of Family Guy, one of my favorite shows. Full seasons of The Amazing Race. Current episodes of The Tonight Show starring my brother Jimmy Fallon. And Saturday Night Live, always funny, plus tons of movies that you can access whenever you want. So right now, you can try Hulu Plus for free for two weeks when you go to HuluPlus.com slash Jericho. That's HuluPlus.com slash Jericho. Go there now to get your free two-week trial. Thanks to Howie Mandel. He was great. So much fun. Maybe And maybe this whole podcast is a dream in the eye of an autistic child. And how much of a mind fart would that be? A mind funk would that be? You got to check out Deal With It. You will laugh, I promise, TBS on Wednesday nights. Don't forget, April 16th, yours truly will be the guest on that show. Guest host, actually. All right, let's go to the phones and see who was paying attention and caught the phone number on the Twitter. At Talk is Jericho. We're talking to Brad in Atlanta. How you doing, hey, bud? What's going on, man? I'm good, buddy. It's going well. How you doing? Just rocking, rocking the podcast here. What's your question today? You know, it's kind of a time to take the wind out of it, but, uh, you know, I want to talk about the fan base. That's really what concerns me the most. Um, you know, it, do you think the fan base has changed so much over the years, even since when we were watching as kids? I mean, there was a lot more gimmicky type of wrestlers back in the 80s up until now. I think it's a lot more athletic competition today. Um, but do you think the fan base, I kind of look at it in terms of two categories. You, you, you've got a fan base that's kind of half of it is more of a casual type of, of fan base where they casually watch WWE programming. Then you've got the other fan base, which is it's kind of a perceived smart mark type fan where they think they, they, should, they, think they know the storylines, they think they should know the results. And there's also a kind of an impatience factor that comes to them. Yeah. I think I think it's an impatience factor, and there's also a little bit of an entitlement factor that people think that they need to know everything before it happens. And I never understood that. You know what I mean? I never wanted to know 
who's going to win or, I, or if I go to a movie, you know, I don't want to know what, what the end of the movie is before I see it because that spoils it for me. And I feel the same way about wrestling. Like when I was uh, growing up, we didn't have internet. There was no stewed sheets. Uh, there was no dirt sheets. And I call them dirt sheets with the utmost respect. I think dirt sheets are very important to the business as well. But what I'm saying is you didn't have those insider uh, information, uh, you know, pipelines that you do now. So I, I just watched the show the way I was supposed to watch. I didn't know anything about what was going on behind the scenes. I uh, didn't know anything about, you know, who was who had backstage heat or who was going to be the next champion or what was going on. Like, for example, the whole Daniel Bryan thing. If we didn't have this Internet and all this pipeline, you would just be thinking, like, sooner or later he's going to get his chance. Sooner or later he's going to get his chance. But now everyone's got this whole, you know, behind-the-scenes quote-unquote, you know, insider information. Some of it's true. Some of it's not. Some of it's exaggerated. Some of it is just there. So it kind of creates a whole new subworld, and I, I don't know if I really like that as much because I think a lot of the magic uh, of wrestling has been taken away. You know, it's like, you know, the new Star Wars movie is completely under wraps. When you get that script, you have to sign your name, and if you say anything, you're in trouble and you get fired. And no one's going to know what happens on that Star Wars movie until you know until it's ready for people to know, and then they can go online and, and, and spoil it for themselves if they want to. But I won't do that. You know, I, st- I still don't know what happened on Walking Dead last Sunday because I haven't watched it yet. But no one said anything, and I'm not going online to find out. I don't want to know. You know what I mean? The, the option yeah. is there, but I choose not to. And I think that a lot of wrestling fans choose to be involved all the way. But unless you're actually in the business, you don't really understand it. And it will kind of warp your enjoyment of the product. I think that's a problem. Yeah, I agree. I agree with that. And and, yeah, and it kind of leads to this. Do you think WWE programming is maybe a little bit overkill right now? I mean, they got a bunch of shows going. And, you know, for you going through the years, the last, especially in the last few years on Raw, and three-hour show, that's got to be tough. I mean, especially the guys that come out at the beginning and then have to come and wait around and do the main event. And it's just, and the fans are just, I think I like the two-hour programming better. Because it, it, well, it just gives you, you know, it's, it's a little bit too much. Yeah, well, once again, um, once again, it, 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 I can understand where they're coming from. Because when I started doing Talk is Jericho, I had one show a week. And then they, you know, my bosses, the powers that be, wanted to give me two shows a week. And when you have two shows a week, it's more penetration, obviously more advertising revenue, a.k.a. more money and more awareness. You know, if I could do the podcast five days a week, I would. Uh, would it be hard? Yes. Would it be hard to get material? Yes. Would it be hard to get great guests every week? Yes. But I would still do it because I would want to be the most dominant podcast in the world. And I think it's the same with WWE. If they're doing two-hour Raws and someone says, we'll pay you X amount of dollars to do three, you take it. If someone says, we'll pay you X amount of dollars to put on a show on Wednesday and a show on Thursday and a show on you know, Saturday or whatever it is, you're going to do it because you want the biggest market penetration you can get and make the most money you can get. Now, would the shows be better if it was just a two-hour show? Of course, probably it would be. But it's not about the quality of the show. It's about the quantity of the show and then leaving it up to the individual performers to make it great. Some of the guys can do that. Some of them can't. So for me, I would take an extra hour of this podcast in a second, knowing how hard it would be, but also knowing that it's just going to uh, build my brand and help me to, to, to become more prominent in the podcasting world or the wrestling world or whatever it may be. Let's go over to Brett in Syracuse and see what's going on up there. How you doing, Brett? Doing good. How you doing? I'm doing good, man. Thanks for listening to the show. Thanks for calling in. Oh, uh, actually, I want to thank you really quick. Uh, I'm going into the military. I just want to thank you for doing the tribute to the troops. Oh, yeah, it was always a blast. I did it three years in a row, and we always had a great time. Oh, yeah. Um, my question for you is, what was your favorite part of your career? Well, I mean, I've got a pretty multifaceted career, so, I mean, there's a lot of different parts to it. I, I think... Um, and it's funny you mentioned Tribute to the Troops because that is one of the favorite moments of my career. Not just one specific moment, but just doing the whole Tribute to the Troops three times. I mean, that was a very honorable, uh, amazing experience that I loved. Uh, I, I think the the biggest thing, if you're asking me ab- about wrestling, is just the fact that I got a chance to tour the world doing what I always wanted to do uh, and, and and being fairly good at it. Um, you know, and, and musically as well. The fact that I had two dreams when I was a kid to, to, to be a wrestler and to be in a rock and roll band, and I've gotten to do both, you know, at the highest level with the WWE and growing with Fozzie to the highest level. It, it's it's just nice to see that, you know, we were able to, to have that 
confidence and that ability to to make lightning strike twice. So, I mean, there's a lot of different moments that I loved. Uh, I loved the the Shawn Michaels Jericho ladder match because we built that over seven months and got to the pinnacle of our business working in the main event of a pay per view for the world championship. Uh, I loved playing Download in 2012 when, when Fozzie was on at noon and the band before us had about 500 people and when we came on half an hour later there was 30,000 people to see us play. Um, I mean, so there's, those are the two big standouts for wrestling and for Fozzie so far. But I think overall my, my favorite career moment is just the fact that I actually had a career and got to do it for as long as I've been doing it and continue to be doing it and have a great loyal fan base that follows me and uh, enjoys everything that I do. Uh, or at least gives me a chance in doing it. So I, I think that's a, a pretty cool legacy to have left. What's your favorite Chris Jericho moment? Ooh, favorite Chris Jericho moment. Um, <laughs> I would have to say when you fought Christian at uh, WrestleMania. Wow, interesting. I, I would never even put that in my top 100. But it's you know a lot of people love love that match and love that uh, love that moment and, and love the whole storyline behind it. And to me, it was good, but it was just one of many. So that's one, another thing, too. When you have as much of a, a varied career as I have with all the different things that I've done, a lot of people love a lot of different things about it. So, um, And we're just getting started, man. We're just getting started. So I appreciate everybody for calling in. I appreciate you for, uh, for choo- 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 choosing Talk is Jericho. And thanks so much for linking to Amazon through the Talk is Jericho page at podcastone.com whenever you do your online shopping. Remember, every time you buy something that way, Amazon kicks back a few dollars to the show so I can keep bringing you the pot of thunder twice a week for free. That costs money for that cowbell and for uh, buying the rights to Mississippi Queen, which I have not bought the rights to. But if you go shopping on Amazon through the Talk is Jericho page, maybe I can make enough money to, uh, to, to, to buy it. But anyways, the Pot of Thunder, always here for you, twice a week for free. And also, if you like the show, thank you for hitting that download button. Well, you are listening to it, so I'm glad you did. But if you like what you're hearing, tell a friend to hit that download button and then tell them to hit a, to, to tell a couple of friends to hit that download button. Hit a couple friends if they're not hitting that download button. Do whatever you got to do to make people hit that download button. And if you like it, if your friends like it, you can even hit that subscribe button at iTunes so you never miss an episode. The, the episode will be delivered to your device free and completely on time. And we will see you next week on Talk is Jericho. Thank you so much for joining us. Stay hungry, stay hard, stay heavy. God bless you all. See you next week. Yeah, boy! You can download new episodes of Talk is Jericho every Wednesday and Friday at podcastone.com. That's podcastone.com.